Live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kayleigh Clark. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to The Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. I've got a I'm very excited about tonight's guest. We've got Mike Gary, who is a poet and performer, who is on the show to talk to us about getting kids excited about reading and poetry and the work that he does in schools. So tune in. Any questions, any um, call-ins you'd like to make to talk to Mike, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Live from Cumbria, this is The Twilight Show with Kayleigh Clark on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, good evening, everyone. Right, so we've just, um, we, we managed to get online um, slightly early this evening and just get a few tech issues sorted. So we've now got Mike live in the studio. Hello. Hello there. Hi, thanks for joining us tonight, Mike. And You're I really, very welcome. I really appreciate all of the effort you went into because obviously getting your Apple ID is a nightmare. <laughs> for getting oh, apps downloaded. Always oh, is. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing Thanks worse than you. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, hopefully you'll you'll still feel that way at the end of the show. So um, yeah, uh, just saying like um, Microsoft, we were just having some issues. There's nothing worse when you're going on a live show that you've got problems with your tech right at the get go. So definitely, um, thank you very much for all that, all your hard work, getting your IDs and everything sorted, Mike. So you're let's, very welcome. <laughs> let's kick off straight away. Um, just introduce yourself, obviously, because you and I have, met, have, have briefly met before. I know it was a it was a whistle stop visit when you came to the school. We didn't get much chance to chat, so talk talk to us about yourself and who you are and and what goes on with you. Um, my name is Mike Gary. I'm a poet. I think the most pertinent element of what I do to your listening audience is that I'm an educationalist as well. So I'm a doctor of education, and I spend a lot of my time going around schools mainly well going around schools and reading poetry to students but i'm hoodwinking them really it's a massive hoodwink like all good teaching you're getting them to do something but you're actually getting them to do something else i'm hoodwinking them into reading because i believe that reading is the answer to everything so i will do anything within my means within my powers within my skills to ultimately get young people, not just young people, in the educational setting, young people, young people to share in the delight of reading because uh, because what it does, I don't need to tell anyone listening to this programme, which is really good. Um, that's one element of the job. So I'm giving Raj groups of 15-year-old boys with their hands down the pants spitting uh, who say things like uh, English is for girls, reading's for girls, and um, I transform them into um, active readers, transforming their perceptions of the world and the environment around them, re making them realise that life is not just about smoking weed and hanging out with your mates around the back of the shops, if you do that anymore, and that life can be a lot richer once you are a reader. So that's one element of what I do. Um, the other element of what I do is I'm a performance poet, 
Um, I've been performing for 25 years. I've toured the world with John Cooper Clark for the last 12 years. I've performed with Philip Glass at the Carnegie Hall. I performed with uh, New Order at the Carnegie Hall. I worked with um, Iggy Pop, Patty Smith. Um, I worked with loads of bands, um, supported The Fall. I'm a poet, but I also live within the rock and roll world uh, whereby I tour with music, with music bands. I also make music. I've also had a number one single um, in 2016 with a poem which was written about the famous factory records owner, Anthony H. Wilson. Um, and it got to number one in three different charts in the UK and raised a load of money for Christie's cancer. Um, but my trade, I'm a qualified librarian, chartered actually. Um, and I worked at libraries for 13 years. And basically what I did with libraries, once they were convinced of my skills, I got them to set up a lot of homework centres in Manchester because what I was finding was that kids were coming into the library to do the homework centre and adults don't really like kids, I found. Um, As a rule. <laughs> well, they don't, do they? They're frightened. Yeah. Adults don't really like kids. Watch an MP near one. Watch his body language. Watch the yeah. way he moves. Makes them uncomfortable. It's, yeah. like he's, it's like he's been poisoned. Um so um, I've distracted myself and I've completely forgotten what I was talking about. So you were saying about when you were a librarian and... Um, I worked as a librarian for 15 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. I set up homework centres because I wanted young people to have a space of their own. And I also, being the empathetic sort that I am, I also wanted older people, the grown-ups, to have a space of their own um, so that it wouldn't... They wouldn't clash. And it was also a wonderful opportunity for young people to go into a space after school. Um, I set one up in a place called Longsight in Manchester um, in 1996, seven. Um, and within weeks, hundreds of kids were in there. It wasn't just an homework centre. It was an environment whereby I led it with a group of volunteers and I chose those volunteers and, and members of staff. And basically I chose people who had a a desire and a love of reading and also could communicate with young people it's not a, it's, it's an incredible skill that not a lot of people have got and it takes years to be able to acquire it um, and I, I set up a space whereby kids come in and express themselves could speak could talk about art talk about any subjects they wanted with the main fulcrum being poetry so i'd read poetry to kids so i'd get a little bee in my bonnet about something that was going on in the world at the time i don't know it might have been i don't know let me think it might have been the strange ways riot let's say and we'd look at articles around that and we'd read poetry about imprisonment and we'd just talk and we'd give the opportunity to young people to express themselves because ultimately Ultimately, it's what we're trying to do. It's what I'm trying to do. Um, it's what we should all be trying to do as adults, not just as teachers. I think I think the idea of teachers... I think teachers have got too much responsibility for a start, but that's another subject. I think adults let go of a lot of responsibility and blame teachers um, when really grown-ups should all be teachers. Um, so I set up homework centre in Longside. It was so successful, we ended up setting seven of us up across Manchester, then like most good teachers and people who work with kids, I was taken out of the working environment and meant to manage them. 
which was a stupid move and which I immediately handed in my resignation and said, no, I want to work with young people. No, I don't want to go to meetings about meetings about meetings and write budgets mm -hmm. and budgets and budgets, which I'm, I'm starting to see in the school environment now whereby teachers are promoted, taken away from the kids and they're made to do a lot of work and we give them 50 quid extra for doing it. Um, when really what we want, well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to stay with the kids. So I handed in my resignation and I left and became a poet. And since then, um, this has been my job. Wow. I mean, there's so much there. There's, there's, there's too much there to fit into an hour and a half show. So we're just going to have to try and narrow some of that down <laughs> as much as we possibly can. Well, you talk to me about whatever you want or whatever you want. <laughs> you you sure. see me work. You know how I operate. Oh, absolutely. And and that's that's the thing is that after you came to um, to the school to do that workshop, you know, the difference in the students before and after and that's something I do want to talk about is kind of the perception of poetry especially in 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 school and when we're teaching it and what kids think about it versus when can they I actually poem, involved to do it sorry can I read a poem absolutely you can yeah fire away I'm just, I'm just sat here thinking as as you can tell the people who are listening um this is I work pretty much off the cuff uh, and I'm sat here listening to us talking about poetry and I'm thinking god I should read a poem Absolutely, um, so I'm digging, go for it. I'm digging, I'm digging one out now. I should have started the session with it. So, <laughs> um, let's have a go at this. Um, Carrie is four and a half, and today she wears her first frock of spring. It is a beautiful white golden stripy number as she enters Bonbonnier's dine on the corner of Jane and 8th Street with Daddy, who's dressed like a businessman on his way to Wall Street. Shirt, suit, tie, boots, tightly cropped hair. They are both spotless and they both smell of orange blossom. Carrie's eyes are two golden suns sat above a button moon above two blotting two blossom petal lips. Daddy orders scrambled eggs and three thin finger-like sausages that he insists on cutting into small pieces, but today all Carrie wants is toast and jelly. She sits on a high stool, swinging her legs rhythmically to the sound of her own nursery rhyme voice, for Carrie is an angel, gliding in and out of rock and cove and cave and beach and sea. Carrie is so free. Her toast arrives with the jelly on top in a plastic individual serving that Carrie attempts to peel open, spilling jelly over fingers and hands. Let me do that for you, honey. No, I can do that myself, Daddy, she says whilst licking fingers and lips, then taking the knife and attempting to spread the jelly over the toasted bread, but ending up spreading it further over hands and fingers and lips. Mmm, strawberries, yummy. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, you say that's it, but yeah, lovely. I mean, is that something that you observed? Is that where that came from? No, it's all in the head. It's all yeah. in the head. It's all in the head. I've been to those places, but and I imagined it in those places, but it's pretty much, pretty much in the head. Brilliant. And I suppose that that's the when I mean something I've, I've written down here just as you were talking. I was making some notes, and you said you became a poet. You know, what does that mean? What does it mean to become a poet? Because for most people, you think you have to, to become something, you might have to train for it, or you might have to take some kind of qualification. 
but what did it mean for you? Any really aspiring poets out there? Really good question. Um, what it meant to me is that I had to earn a living out of my poetic skills, basically. That's mm. when I became a poet, when it wasn't just something I was doing uh, for ego, when it became something that I had to do to feed my children, basically. When I became a poet, I had two kids on my own. Do you know what I mean? I left, yeah. I left, I left the most well-paid job I had ever had in my life uh, and became a poet with two kids on my own. Not totally on my own, I shared them with my ex-partner and that, but... Ultimately, I had to um, I had to provide. So when I became into a situation whereby I had to provide, whereby it became my profession, that's when I feel as if it, I became a poet. That's a really interesting question because I know it's only four letters, but it's a big, big word, and it's a very difficult thing to call yourself. And for many years, I hid behind it. Growing up, I I've been writing since I was seven years old. Do you know what I mean? I was changing. Yeah the lyrics to songs and messing about and playing with them since I was seven years old, since Arche brought me into his bedroom and introduced me to David Bowie and albums <laughs> and music and Roger McGough and, and people like that. Um, but I'd been writing since I was seven years old. I became a librarian. I started working in libraries. It's the only job I'd ever had in the whole of my life. Only legal job, guys. Uh, the rest of them were all on building sites or stuff like that. Um, yeah. Before that, it was my first proper job, so um, it gave me access to so much poetry. And I do believe that in lots of ways, my study of poetry happened when I started working in libraries because the access to the uh, collections of poetry was massive. And I read them all. I read so much poetry. I used to be on stack retrieval where you used to have to run off and find books for people, but I'd disappear to 823.914, I think it was. Dewey Decimal Classification System, uh, stay with it. Um, and I just spend hours there reading and reading and writing and going to shows and listening to other poets like Lem Sisse, John Cooper Clark, Lincoln Quasi Johnson, and seeing all, all these inspirational people. And why they were inspirational is because they spoke like me. They didn't speak like how I imagined poets to speak. They spoke like me. The first time I saw Lincoln Quasi Johnson on TV doing Sonny's Letter, was just a, a massive changing day in my life because it made me realise that people who, I know I don't speak like Lyndon Quasi Johnson, but I mean, we're from the same part of town in lots of ways. Um, yeah. And it, 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 it made me realise there is a place for people like me. It was like reading Kez. Every book I'd read before Kez was about privilege in lots of ways. You know what I mean? It's about kids in um, private schools, boarding schools or whatever, because that's the main stuff to give us. I call it the Jim Bowen effect. I call I, I call my education the Jim Bowen effect. Now, Kaylee, I think you're you you might be. A oh no, I, I remember Bullseye. No, no, you right, don't so have to. You don't have to tell so me. Bullseye, <laughs> but my idea is that is, is that our lesson was a bit. Our, our, my education was the Jim Bowen effect, and basically the last bit where they've got a chance to win the star prize. Do you remember where they, they've got to throw six darts and get one or one? Yes. For throwing the six darts, no one ever gets it, no matter how good they are. And amidst the the, the, the sadness, the tears, and the sighs, as the curtain slow rises to reveal this week's star prize, and Jim Bowen mutters eleven monosyllabic words, profound, philosophical, and heartbreakingly observed. Come and have a look at what you could have won. Yeah. Because I feel as if that's what, that's what my education was in lots of ways. Come and have a look at what you could have won. I felt like it was people showing me things 
that were inaccessible. That's so profound that you say that. I felt like the literature that we were given were worlds beyond us. They weren't our worlds. And the most important thing to me, as far as I'm concerned, to inspire young people when it comes to reading is relative, whether it is relative to them and their lives. I talk to them all the time about books as mirrors, art as mirrors, poems as mirrors. Until I'd read the word, the, the book Kes, A Kestrel for a Knave by Barry Hines, I'd never read about anyone who was even remotely like me. When I discovered Billy Casper, this little trampy kid who grew up in an alcoholic household with a bullying big brother, not that I had a bullying brother, I had a loving big brother, big brothers, but it was someone like me, a kid who was on the edge, who was on the outside, who fought differently, who was obsessed with individual things, who swore and he sweared and was in his books. Until I read Cares, I just felt as if my whole education's reading was a joke and most of the reading was done on my own based upon recommendations from big brothers yeah it's it's really important that you that you said that i remember you talking about reading kez um Kesha for a knave and the impact that it had on you um and that is it, it's such, it's such a difficult thing to do to to um give kids access to literature that they can genuinely relate to um, because, like you say, it is so important. Like, what's what's the point? And I think when you said about um, speaking, in the, you know, you were you were shocked by the way that the poets spoke because they spoke more like you than you were expecting them to. Yeah, what, yeah. And and it, you know, straight away that that made you realise this is something I can do. I could be like these guys. No, I w- I was already like them guys, but I couldn't admit to it myself. Yeah, I was already like them in terms of. Listen, it's all about confidence. It's all about mm-hmm. degrees of confidence. I grew up in right. I grew up in the Hacienda, right? A club running monster, massive art club running monster by Factory Records. That spawned more bands than anywhere else. Joy Division, New Order, Happy yeah. Mondays, The Smiths, Stone Roses. All these bands were products of this organisation. So while everyone was walking around telling everyone they were a designer, they were a designer. Just drawing a few pictures in the room, but. You've got to say you're a designer so that you can become a designer. I was the opposite. I didn't tell no one I wrote a thing. Because where I grew up, if you walked up to your mates and went, all right, lads, do you want a poem? You'd get a slap. So I kept <laughs> it quiet. I kept it quiet. I kept my old artistic. I even hung out with loads of artists like Brian Glancer, who became a seldom seen kid. Johnny Bramwell of I Am Clue. The artists that I hung out with, like sis say, these people who were up, I would never admit to being a poet because I did not have the confidence. I did not yeah. have the confidence to do that. And it was only when I was forced into a corner, i.e. I had to make it my living, that I had the confidence to stand up and say, yeah, I'm a poet. Yeah. And like you say, it's almost like fake it till you make it, isn't it? You know, the confidence that comes what? with... It's funny you say that because I was... I was um, I'm 56 now, so I've sussed it. I've pretty much sussed it. I know, I know there is no such thing as faking it until you make it now for me. I was just about to do a session with a group of kids last week, and I didn't know who the kids were. I haven't prepared anything. And she just goes, oh, just wing it. And I said, <laughs> I said, do you think it's just winging it still? I said, do you think having the skill and the ability to be able to, without any form of notice or warning, to be able to capture a group of kids and keep them enraptured for an hour. Do you think that's winging it? Because it ain't. Because that's skill. Yeah. It's real skill to be able to do that. 
It's like, also, I said in a meeting the other day, I don't really know, but we're working with a group of young people and we're making a film, and I trust in them. So I don't want to sit there and go, let's do this, 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 and this. Uh, I trust in them for them to guide us. And I said, to, and then I said in the meeting to these people who are giving me a load of money, I do it. I said, I don't really know what I'm doing. But to be able to say that shows incredible confidence. To be able to say you don't know what you're doing and you're trusting in a group of young people. Again, I trust the young people. I know they will make things good. Um, it requires great skills. We don't wing it anymore. We're far too skilled. Far too yeah. skilled. We've done too much and we're too knowledgeable. And also, I think a lot of it's about spirit as well. And I don't want to freak any teachers out when I say that. And I'm not talking about godly. I'm talking about that. I'm not talking about a godly spirit, Roman Catholicism. I'm talking about your spirit. Your spirit is an individual. Your spirit is an individual to be able to work with that group and want the best for them and to bring your sense of self, i.e. you, because that's something teachers can't do anymore. They can't bring you to the classroom. They're restricted so much. They've got to stick so much to time. You bring you and your love as to why you got into teaching and why you want to work with kids and why you want the best for them. I tell every kid I work with now, I love them. Honestly, you should see teachers' faces. I tell every kid I love them. It's been new thing. I'm telling every kid, and I'm not lying because I do. I do love them, and I'll, I'll say it to them. And they love it. They love you as well, but they're not allowed to tell you. And I'll point at the teachers because deep down inside, if you want to become a teacher. And you've been in teaching for 10 years. You must love kids. You must love kids, but understand the restrictions of the environment in which we work in. You can't tell a kid you love them. You'd be in front of a tribunal in five minutes, but I'm genuine. I genuinely love kids. And I want them to know that, I want the, that I've made it my life's ambition to want to get the best for them because of the behaviour of other adults. So I want to do the best for you and I want to apologise for the behaviour of other adults and I want you to understand that my life's ambition is to work as hard as I can for you and most of the people in this building is exactly the same. And I yeah. do genuinely believe that. I do genuinely believe Don't get me wrong, you get one or two DOS teachers, but you can't get them anymore. You can't survive anymore, they're gone. Um, I'm probably talking about the wrong subject on it. Sorry, uh, no, no, not not at all, not at all. It it all links together because, uh, you know, what you're saying there. It, I I'm in my first year as a teacher, so this is it. It, it isn't the first. It's not the first job that I've had. I've I've come to teaching quite late in comparison to a lot of people, but um, this is my first year as a teacher. And one of the things that really strikes you is the te the teachers that you watch and you think, my gosh, they're awesome. I want to be able to do what they're doing and it looks so natural and so calm and in control and they do look like they are just making it up as they go along but they're not and you know it, it is it is very it's not scripted but it's like it comes with years of practice and years of experience yeah. and to, to know exactly what to do and when how to respond to each child as they ask whatever question they have in their head and it just what you've just said there about you know that ability to go into a room full of kids and just absorb them it's practiced skill. It's not just something that you can do on the fly, is it? No, is it? Is it? I can spot kids in care now. Yeah. I can go into a classroom and I can suss out the kid in care. I literally can be senses of that strong in a group of, with a group of young people now. I can suss it. I can just suss it. And there's a lot. That is an instinctive ability that comes over time through what you've said there, experience. You know what I mean? And practice. 
that's something I want to rewind to a little bit. Something we were talking about a second ago. No one ever... Right, teachers, anyone who's listening to this, Kayla, I'll ask you this question. Have you ever been told to practice reading? Um, yeah, probably. You're lucky, because I've never been told, and the thousand people who have asked since I thought about it, I've never been told. Because reading requires practice. To become a reader requires practice. I don't think it's something we emphasise enough. No. I think what I mean by... Sorry to interrupt. I think what I mean by being told what? to practice is maybe you've you've been given a book and, and said, right, go away and read that. Practice your reading by reading. And so I think, like, if I can maybe anticipate what you're going to say is that if you can't read or if you struggle with reading, that's no help to you to just say, well, go away and read and become a better reader. Is that sort no, of what the, you were going to say? No, the process... I, I don't think we look at the process of reading in the right way, and I don't think I don't honestly think schools are the best places for kids to learn how to read. To be honest, because of time, mm. uh, you, you should act as a fulcrum. The school should be a fulcrum more than anything else, from which all learning takes place. And I do believe that reading is part of that, but I don't think we put enough emphasis on it at the early stages. I don't ever remember sitting with a teacher with a book and talking through the opening page, let's say. Because I think that's the key. I think the key is kids read books and they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know what a book is. They don't really know what it's for. They don't really know how it functions. But if, if, someone, told, if someone asked them the question from the start, very simple question, do you know why it's called a novel? That simple question. Do you know what it's called a novel? Do we know why it's called a novel? Well, because it's new. It's new. Novels are new things. You know what I mean? Poems and plays have been around for millennia. But novels, they're only about 250, 300, 300 years old. No one yeah. ever tells us that. No one ever talks to us about the fact that they were once seen as whimsical and just for girls. Yeah about flowers and fairies. Oh, it's all that imagination business. As if imagination is a sin. As if mm. imagination is a bad thing. You know what I mean? Men shouldn't be imagining. Let's leave that to the girls. Let, let them have their whimsical ideas. Um, maybe that's why women are a lot more sussed in lots of ways. Uh, <laughs> no, one, no one actually sits down with the opening page of a book and goes, right, when you read the opening page, right, read that page, right, who's talking? Whose voice can be here? Would you like him? Do you think you'd like him? Do you think he'd be a mate? What sort of cars he got? What's his favourite meal? No one gets the voice. No one explains the voice clearly enough to the reader. Mm. And when you're starting off, when you're starting off, 12, proper books, you know what I mean? 11, 12, 13, those, those ages, when you feel terrible about yourself, anyway, in most cases, because of the way society treats young people. Um, you don't have the confidence and you don't have the practice skills anyway because again we weren't taught at earlier stages to read what we were doing we were taught to repeat words in lots of ways or read reading schemes um, that are totally insignificant and mean nothing to young people um, the process of practice the process of talking through talking through the novel um, 
just gives the kid what period is it taking place in what else was going on there does that influence at all and just slowly guide them through it explain the architecture of a novel yeah split up into different chapters um explain why it's split up explain why this breaks talk to them about breaks talk to them about Ultimately, it's a spoken voice. It's a voice in your head. Talk to them about the inner voice in their head that speaks to them, but speaks to nobody else. Talk to them that is about that. The author, the guy you wrote that for, right, Kayla, I want you to have a little bit of my mind. Do you know, Kayla, I've been thinking about this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I want to share this with you. What do you think? Because that's what it is. You know what I mean? It's not. It's 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 not a passive act, reading. It's a yeah. physical act of 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 so many emotions. The amount of times I've thrown books across the room. The amount of times I've wept into books, snorted into books, cried into books. You know what I mean? The amount of times I've spilt in and I've, I've dropped ash in them uh, because my relationship with them is is so close that in lots of ways. Um, they come along with me, they carry me around my world, they inform me, they talk to me about things. I've just read Colston White Reads, I read it, read it a few months ago. Colston White Reads, latest book, I can't even remember what it's called. Colston White Read, Black American, New York writer. Uh, and he's writing about uh, uh, New York in the 50s and 60s when, uh, more in the 60s when, um, when uh, civil rights was taking place and a lot of the yeah. immigrants were getting more rights. Um, I'd never thought about it before. I'd never thought about the fact that once they started to get a little bit more rights, they'd go on holidays. So they'd need, an, uh, they'd need a travel agent who would tell them where they could go because they were black and if they went certain places, they'd get started on the green flag. I didn't realise that so many small businesses set up with these to to support the opening up and freedom of yeah. Americans. I learn so much all the time, every day, and it's a pleasure, to, it's just a pleasure to be knowledgeable. Because I yeah. love New York. I mean, most of the time, yeah. I don't think I can... York, he's down Harlem, I love Harlem. I think... Yeah. Oh, might have lost you a bit there. Sorry, I'm just Oh no, it's not that. It just the line just suddenly yep. went dead. So I was just checking that we didn't have a problem. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm, I can hear me, Mike. Hello. Yeah, clearly. Can you hear me? Uh. Oh, we've got a bit of a technical hitch there. I tell you what we'll do is I'm just conscious of the time, so I will um, just play the news. And we'll get Mike, uh, just check that everything's all right on the techie side and we'll get Mike back on as soon as we can. I, we, I can hear you, if you can hear me. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Oh, fa fabulous. Right, okay, never mind. We've, we're back on it. I don't know yeah, what just, happened. <laughs> it just suddenly went really, really crackly and then you disappeared altogether, but we're back on it and that's the main thing. But yeah, cool. just, to, just to touch on what you said there, I mean, I don't... I, I know you said, you said I'm rambling, but... You can you can clearly hear the passion in your voice. You know this is something that really matters to you. You clearly love reading. You you understand what what authors are trying to achieve when they write a book. As you say, they are talking to the people who are going to be reading this book. One of the big things that schools are always 
trying to achieve is to develop a reading for pleasure culture in school and to try and get kids to fall in love with reading. How do we do that? Because it is it seems to be like the perpetual conundrum of how do you get kids who aren't interested in reading to love reading and to do it because they choose to and not because they're forced to in an English lesson? What do you think the answer is? That's a massive question. I'm going to it start. Is. I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the 15 year old kids who I spoke about before. You know, yeah. the kids who the kids who who are virtually off record. The kids who are not, who are really struggling, they're going to really, do really badly in their exams because they've just been lazy all the way through. Usually bright kids, but lazy and too intelligent. Let's, yeah. let's talk about them to start off with because they're an ignored group, I believe, especially in the UK. And what I'm discovering is they're all white working class kids. Yeah? yeah. Main, not all, not all, but a, mass major, a vast majority is white working class kids. Um because immigrants have sussed it. My parents were Irish immigrants, you know what I mean? They sussed it. It's half the reason they came here for education. Not in all cases, but let's take that group of 15-year-old boys. So here's my idea. Pay them. Pay them to read. You've almost lost them. They're almost off school record. They're almost gone. They're probably not going to do any exams because you're probably going to try and get rid of them in one way or another beforehand before those come in. Pay them to read. So let's start off with Animal Farm. 50 quid. 50 quid to read Animal Farm. It's ne what is it? 98, 110 pages? It's nothing. Animal Farm. You've got a week. Come back in a week having read that. The kid comes back in a week. You talk to the kid about the novel. You speak to the kid about the novel. You ask him questions, not direct questions that you don't think like you try to suss him out, but you just make sure he's read it. Yeah. And then you ask the and then you ask opinions. You engage with the kid. You ask him opinions about it. Then you advocate opinions. Then, on the Friday afternoon at those special assemblies that everyone done, that kid's called on stage and given a crisp, massive £50 note so that every kid in that school sees that kid getting a £50 note. Also, it's a five-book programme. You've got to read five books. It's going to cost the school 300 quid. Right, because when they've read five, they get a fifty quid bonus. But slowly, you take them through five books. I don't know what's next. Catcher in the Rye, maybe. I don't know. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I don't know. There's a, um, there's a mockingbird is probably a good Kill one. Killer mockingbird. So, yeah. so, there's a vast array of books with which to engage with this kid. Yeah, and I believe by the fifth book, this kid's a reader. And I also believe that. By the fifth book, this kid's whole life has transformed, totally transformed. Because the process of reading involves, you said it, you touched on it a minute ago, uh, the author's got something really important to say. But also with reading and writing, is it's an exploration of self. It's a looking at ourselves. Let's not forget that books and art are mirrors. When you look that, that much into a mirror, and you compare yourself and you ask yourself questions simply through the process of reading. You've done a massive self-exploration. Yeah? After five books, that 15-year-old kid is going to have sussed it. That 15-year-old kid is going to have gone, what am I doing? What am I doing wasting these opportunities? Because the kid will have grown up. Yeah. So that's my, And also, every time that kid on the stage... See, it's validation as well. That kid is probably really skillful at a hundred different things that no one in that 
that this world doesn't see as valuable because this world sees as valuable for young people, academic. That's all they see as valuable. Or sport. But sport's linked to academia anyway. That's all they see as valuable. It's the only way they're assessed. It's the only way they're judged or told they're good or bad by school. Yeah. In it. In it, really. So, uh, so for that kid, most of his life, he's going to have been told he was bad. He hasn't been validated in any way. All those skills and things that he does on his own, all those things that he does, he, he might be a PlayStation, he might be brilliant on PlayStation. Well, fair enough, kid. Nice one for being brilliant on PlayStation. No one validates him for that. He's just moaned at. He's just moaned at. By going through this reading process, we have an opportunity to validate a kid on a regular basis, on a regular basis. Um, but immediately I'll say, but schools don't have time to do that. Schools don't have time to do that. In well, they probably don't have the budget to do it either, in fairness. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, Kayla, I really, really disagree with that. It's £300. If it was, if I don't know how per many... Per kid, though. Ki- yeah, how many? But how many of those kids are, are realistically? How many of? No, I, I think I get what you're saying, Mike. What, what you what you're ultimately saying is they need to get some form of validation. They need to be seen for for the things that they're good at, and and not yeah. just judged on the things that they struggle with in relation to the kids who are naturally academic and who are doing well at school. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's a fantastic point. I, I get you know, at my school, obviously, you've you've met. Um, Martin, who is um, leading the literacy charge at our school, and we, we try and do that to some extent with, you know, giving them um, kudos and, and um, you know, a big pat on the back every time they do well with their reading. But it's it's getting them over that initial hurdle. You do tend to find that the, the kids who are always there are the ones that you don't really need to convince why reading is a good thing. The ones yeah. that you need to get on the stage are the ones who have already decided that reading books is a waste of my time. So yeah, yeah. how it, it's how do we how do we tap into that mindset and like you know blow it apart and say no th- this is the difference between you having uh, you know opening the world before you and you feeling like you've never really achieved anything you know that's that's how do we do that and it's too big of a question really isn't it well no it isn't because because there are little bits and pieces that you can do, you know what I mean? And I massively blame the, the, the curriculum as well, the national curriculum. Please, anyone who's listening to this, it sounds like I hate teachers. I've just been thinking about it. I love teachers. I think you're ace. I think you do amazing, amazing things. And I know that in lots of ways, what you actually teach them has got very little to do with you. It's dictated to in lots of ways. And the course is dictated to in lots of ways. And in lots of ways, you just, I know you don't want to be teaching that stuff. And if you had the time, you'd be teaching them. You'd be doing exactly the same thing, but just in different ways. Here's an example. Why is all assessment, why is most assessment of poetry about its meaning? Why do we put so much emphasis on meaning? We could put exactly the same emphasis. Ultimately, we want to assess the kid's understanding, don't we? Yeah. And his knowledgeability about the subject, etc. We could do exactly the same with poetry, but take meaning out of it and just explore sound. Just use sound as the main emphasis of subject study. The sound of the poem, the sounds, allow a kid to express his understanding of sound. Why do we place so much emphasis on meaning? Why do we seem to think that meaning is the key to it all? Because I do believe that GCSE English is the biggest alienator of 
young people against poetry. I do think it makes young people hate poetry with a passion because what it does is, because they don't clearly and fully understand figurative speech, because they don't understand that clearly, because they haven't been readers, um, it becomes a bit of a mystery to them. And also, it becomes a bit of a mystery you can't crack. Two and two is always four. Pi r squared is always the area of a circle. But a poem is different every time. So there's no regularity to it. There's no standard way of approaching it. Yeah. And also, also, you're asking that kid to, to think about things metaphysically almost. You're almost, a metaphor is an out of this world comparison. Yeah, we're asking this kid to think out of this world. Um, big demands, really big demands. And what happens to that kid is he sees Billy putting his hand up and saying, yeah, this poem's about the war, sir. And he sits there and he thinks, the war? What are you going on about, the war? How have you got that? And it makes him feel stupid. And when lads, well, I could speak about myself, when lads feel stupid, they hide. They hide away and try not to be seen in any way. Because the worst thing, John Ronson said this, and it's, it's, it's a tragic thing. The worst thing that can ever happen to a man is to be laughed at. Mm. Um, in, in comparison to the same question he asked to a woman, and I know this is Thursday after, uh, Sunday afternoon, is to be raped. Now that's quite profound in a sense. Look at the difference between the two things. For a man, his biggest fear to be laughed at. Humiliated is what you're Yeah, yeah. Um, so they will disappear. They'll disappear and they'll try not to be seen in any way. Um, yeah, which is a big a big thing in education is um, there's a, there's research and, and things and, and you know questions constantly being asked about why do boys see well why do girls seem to outperform boys and it's always seemed to be the vast majority of you know the kids that you know inverted commas are the misbehave misbehaving children the vast majority of them are boys and and it's like what what is why is that. You know, and and maybe that's exactly what what it is. Maybe it all ties in. It's the idea that if a boy is not does not feel that he's achieving what his peers are, then instead of, you know, in in his concern about being humiliated, they back off and they they totally. try to go the opposite direction. Maybe you know, it sounds so simple when you say it like that, but the reason why yeah. the reason why girls are becoming much, so much more successful is because boys are kinesthetic learners they want to be up and moving around they want to be moving around at all times when what schools do is the total opposite they make them sit down look at little boys and look at them growing up they've got ants in the pants all the time and they get to the age of six and we tell them to sit down all day how can they learn in that environment whereby all they're doing is itchy ass wanting to get up and danced around you know what I mean? They can't do that. Compare that to girls, the way girls learn. Those lists, man, do you know what I mean? That's what education is. It's lists. They love it. They absolutely love it. And also the nature of young women or young girls and young women is that their communication with other girls is totally different to other lads. Totally different to other lads. Again, it's because of communication. The girls can talk to each other. The girls can express and share things with each other. The lads can. Because they do not have the skills. 
They don't have the communication skills. They don't know how to do it. And that's why we see lads punching each other all the time in the, in the classroom. And in a, yeah. I tell lads now, you do know, A, it's homoerotic, because it is, it's very homoerotic. And they're also punching each other in the balls all the time, which is another thing. The headlocks. So I just call it secret hugs. <laughs> No, because that's what it is. I genuinely think that's what it is. I think it's a lot going, I really like you. I really like yeah. you, but I don't know how to tell you. So this is how I'm going to do it. I really like you, and I don't know how to tell you. So this is how I'm going to do it. But then what lads do is, they take it into the courting, don't they? They take it into the first girlfriends. So you think about your first relationships, your first physical contact and first relationships were based upon wrestling with lads or being put in a headlock with lads. Because like, yeah, well, you're laughing, you're laughing because I'm right. Um, well, thank goodness you don't go as far as putting the girls in headlocks. I've, I've not come across that. No, I, know it, I see exactly I've, what you're saying. I've seen it. <laughs> well, yeah. Again, it's communication. Yeah. Just the the ability to communicate, and the girls' skills grow so much more because they can communicate better, and that's it's why so, it's successful in education. It's so funny you should say that actually, because I'm immediately I'm picturing there's four boys I've got in one in my year nine class at school, and honestly, any opportunity to touch each other yeah, under there, yeah. and it might just be as daft as you know the the ruffling. You know, they ruffle each other's hair or or they're like you know they're poking each other or something you know poking one another in the arm or something and i make, the I make physical a physical need to touch yeah and i make a joke of it and i say i know you love each other very much but you've really got to you know stop stop touching him we've got to get on with some work now you know and they they get all embarrassed and he he about it but it doesn't stop them <laughs> they're doing it all the time i i talk all the time about about yeah. um with young people about you do understand that your behaviors are metaphorical you do understand mm. that your behaviours, because, and you do understand that your behaviours, what you're trying to show, actually displays something else. So when a lad keeps smacking a girl, or when a girl keeps smacking, you know, I ate him, I ate him, I ate him. They might as well be saying mm. a fancier, a fancier, a fancier. Um, and as soon as you start introducing that, it stops. When I started to tell this group, lads, you know, every time you touch him, it's it's you telling him you love him, you know, but it's because you haven't got the words to say it. You're telling him <laughs> you love him. Every time you touch him, you turn. It stopped. It stopped because they knew and they were they were aware then that the physical. It's growing up. It's what yeah. growing up is. It's it's what discovering uh, access, acceptable means of communications and behaviour. And the more we make them aware of that, um, and again, it, the root of it's reading. The root of the very heart of it all is reading for those lads to grow up. Um, all girls, I keep saying lads, I'm giving a lot of lads. Um, and we spoke about, we spoke about how do we get, how do we get that to happen? How do we get young people to become readers? I don't think we do enough at the start. Mm. I really don't think we do enough at the start. I think the old concept of testing kids from nursery school upwards is, is a joke. It's an absolute yeah. joke. Kids should be playing and playing and playing and learning through playing and talking. Talking, being a, being a good rounded kid means you've had time. Loving people have given you time. And that's what it is. You've had time with people. And you've been able to socialise, and you've been able to talk, you've been able to express, you've been able to grow in confidence. I'm a really shy person. I'm an incredibly shy person. But when I talk about something like, You've seen me in a classroom. I've mm -hmm. not got a problem. I can do, I, I can do class after class after class, and I can change it for every single group. But ultimately, all I'm trying to do is convince those kids to read, and I know it works. 
I know it works what I do because the emails I get. I got an email from a kid from a parent the other day, and she just said, "I heard my child read for the first time today thanks to you." He's yeah. fifteen. He's fifteen. He read in. I believe he read in your class. And I'm like, yeah, because that's what happens. If you're in my class, you read. I know it's dead hard. Reading aloud is really, really hard. Again, we don't validate reading as a difficult process. If a kid ain't into reading, we never say to them, yeah, I don't know, it's hard, isn't it? We just think you can either read or you can't read. We think it's either black or white when it isn't. You've got to validate kids and tell them why they're good because learning to read learning those 26 different letters man oh my god and then they start sticking them together incredible man and then they start sticking those words together to make sentences and then they said and it's to be to be able to do that and to be able to understand that is an incredible skill an yeah. incredible skill which again i'll say it and i'll compare it to musical instruments and i'll, comp I'll compare it to football and i'll compare it to other things that requires practice you need to practice. Um, I know that sounds... I, in my sessions sometimes, I'll be talking about the importance of reading, and then I'll just turn around to the kids and go, did you ever have a weird uncle who'd take you out for walks on Sunday? I know it's a stupid thing to say, but I do lots of stupid things to say, as you've discovered. But then, yeah. I, talk about, but then I talk about this weird uncle who, we had, who used to take me out walking on Sundays. And it was a bit weird. He'd take me out and we'd go to Glossop and we'd walk up an hill. My feet would get soaked and my butties would be soggy and I'd break my mum's flask and I wouldn't have the right footwear because I'd be slipping. But then I got to the top of the hill and the sandwiches disappeared. The flask was no problem. And he was actually all right, my uncle. He was all right. And I compare that to reading all the time. It's climbing a hill. It really, really is climbing a hill. But once yeah. you get to the top of that hill, and I can't promise you, but I do know they are the lottery numbers. They are the lottery numbers. I say that to kids all the time. I've got the lottery numbers. Do you want them? Do you want them? And it's true. It's a matter of convincing the kids that this is the way out. This is our escape. And it's dead simple. Because we know now, and I say it all the time, those exams aren't hard. Those exams are not hard. They are so... What's the Rudimentary. It's just a matter of very simple processes that we go through to be successful at that. But I'll say it all the time. I'm not interested in those exams. And I'll say this all the time as well. They give you the answers. The teachers give you the answers to put in those places on those. And they do. Those exams are so easy now. Um, and in a way, teachers are forced to do this in lots of ways. I know you're all pulling your hair out and going, we don't, we don't. Um, no, you, what you're saying is, is is right, because I think even even teachers who um, want, you know, again, one of the things that teachers are often not, well, you know, for want of a better word, complaining about, is that the need to teach to the exam. It's not exactly. necessarily what it's you want to teach them. That. Yeah, but because you've got this exam at the end and there is a very specific curriculum you've got to take them through in order for them to access this exam, you have to teach to the exam. So it's, I don't think it's as, it's as the same as, you know, giving them the answers, but you have to prepare them to answer a very specific question. Yeah, so, yes, yeah, it has to yeah. be their own work, but you, you give them everything they need to do it. it it's, it's very little based on originality, I suppose. So j just 
I want to finish this. I, I, I know we're not finishing now, but make sure we build space at the end of our chat, please, Kayla, so that I can yeah. finish with a poem about teachers. Absolutely. Because I feel as if I've been dissing teachers. Please, teachers, <laughs> do not think I am dissing you. I am dissing systems. I am dissing Etonian systems handed down year after year after year that alienates working class and council estate kids, that a system of education that does nothing for them. Nothing. All right, Tom Brown School Days, great book, but not if you've grown up on a council estate. For the majority of the kids, it isn't a great yeah. book. You know what I mean? They need to be reading things relatively. We need to bring them in slowly with reading. We need to guide them in. They've got to understand that reading's the mate and not someone the ate and not someone that makes them feel small and useless because that's what reading does. It makes yeah. it make it just adds to the insecurity and the insecurities yeah. are massive. They're growing up in trauma. Yeah. They're growing up in traumatic worlds, yeah. Their lives, the lives they live, they are trauma after trauma after trauma. And we're throwing poems at them and expecting them to be able to, you know? Um, I think we should, going back to the original point, I think we should start earlier and turn our kids into readers as early as we possibly can and yeah. stop testing them. Stop testing them and start allowing them to be themselves. Start allowing them to be themselves. Yeah, that's so, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So important. Right. Sorry, we're going to have to pause there for a second because I do have to play adverts and news. So um, have a cuppa and <laughs> we'll, we'll uh, resume again in about five or six minutes. Is that all right, Mike? That's great. Fantastic. Thanks. See you in a minute. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewonderlettersandsounds.org.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, You'll be given all the resources and support you need, 
offered a clear path to career progression and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. A report in the Evening Standard covers the news that Eton College will open state six forms in towns in the north of England and the Midlands. The schools will be opened in Dudley, Middlesbrough and Oldham and will help students to get into Oxbridge and other top universities. The three areas are included in the list of 55 education cold spots that have been targeted for additional support by the government's levelling up agenda. It comes as part of a partnership with Star Academies. Higher achieving pupils at GCSE who are from poorer backgrounds will be encouraged to gain top A-level grades. Eton will bid in the next wave of the government's free schools programme, with colleges expected to welcome their first pupils in 2025. In the Gambia, UK-based charity Binti Period revealed its plans to introduce menstrual pads into the Gambia so that all girls have access. The charity believes that this would further ensure that girls do not drop out of school during puberty. In a meeting with the First Lady of Gambia, the charity also explained how it had embarked on a programme to train 100 teachers in the Gambia on menstrual education. The objective is to smash the stigma and shame attached to menstruation but the training also covered other issues, including polygamy, FGM and sexual grooming. Online lessons are to be made available to 100,000 refugee pupils, said Education Secretary Nadeem Zahawi. He was speaking at the Association of School and College Leaders annual conference in Birmingham. He stated, we are working with schools to ensure that the tens of thousands of Ukrainian children we will welcome to our shores will have a place in our education system. The lessons will be made available through Oak National Academy via an auto-translate function available in both Ukrainian and Russian. Matt Hood, Principal of Oak National Academy, said, The work we have done to make Oak's lessons available in Ukrainian is only a tiny contribution to this crisis, but it is a tool that may help them re-establish some sort of routine once they reach safety. Finally, this week saw the annual recognition of International Women's Day, but a story in Schools Week reports that many colleges have had to defend themselves after a Twitter bot called them out for hypocrisy. Organisations across the UK came under fire after the gender pay gap bot retweeted their posts honouring the day with details added about their figures on women's median hourly pay compared to men's. Numerous colleges fell victim with some deleting their original posts. In response, some colleges have said that context should be considered. For example, Furness College in Cumbria, where women's median hourly pay is 32.4% lower than men's hourly rate, told FE Week that their gap was high because a large number of female staff are in lower skilled jobs. The Fawcett Society campaigns to close the gender pay gap and agrees that the divided labour market, where women are still more likely to be in low paid and low skilled jobs, is a reason for the gap but says that inequalities and discrimination in the labour market must be reduced if things are to improve. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk timers. After being challenged to make a timer with shapes in PowerPoint, I thought I'd throw out a quick tip for the most common presentation software used in teaching. Microsoft PowerPoint and Google Slides. The easiest way to add a timer is embedding a YouTube timer video. In Google Slides, it's easy. Simply click on the insert menu and select video. You'll then be given the option to search YouTube. If you didn't know already, YouTube is full of timer videos. So type in the timer you want, for example, five minute timer, and you'll be given a list of videos to choose from. Select the one you want and it will embed. Finally, use the video format options to determine whether you want it to play on a click, start automatically or manually. Job done. You can also do this in PowerPoint, but you'll need to search YouTube first to find your video as you'll need the video's URL. If you're not a geek, that's the big long www address. Now you've got the address, select insert video and online video. Paste in the address and it will embed. Again, you can decide how it plays back in the playback menu. For both these methods, you need to be connected to the internet for them to work, but usually you will be. For this week's visual version, I'll retweet my example of the shape timer from last week and add a short tutorial demonstrating the methods I've just described. So don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening again, everyone. Welcome back, and uh, thank you for those of you who have been listening from the beginning. Hoping you enjoy the show so far. We've got Mike Gary, um, poet from Manchester, who has um, been talking about well, too much, too much to go over um, and review just at the moment. But basically, everything from how we get um, students uh, loving to read, why it's so important that we. Um, give them freedom and and um, allow them to express themselves when they're at school the problems with testing you name it we've probably talked about it tonight so if you've missed anything definitely catch up on the pod the podcast when it's released later tonight so mike um let's just take it back to poetry for a second um why you know obviously i got you on the show tonight because i've seen you deliver these workshops that you do with you with the students and they inspired me to, to read more poetry so I, I can only imagine that the inf, uh, Im, impact they had on the students you know I, I think there's a reluctance and we've talked about this already tonight there's a reluctance with poetry they think it's boring they think it's irrelevant they don't see how it affects them we've talked a lot about novels um but what about poetry you know what is the power of poetry specifically that you think is so important for young people to access so within the format that I'm talking about, i.e. the reluctant readers and stuff like that, the reason why the reluctant reader, what most kids are reluctant readers, the reason why the reluctant readers is because of length, the length of something, it can take ages, I won't be able to concentrate for a long. Let's start off with the fact that a poem's dead short. Yeah. Start off with that. I'm, I'm flogging poetry like an advertiser, all right. Mm-hmm. Let's start off with the fact that it's short. Yeah. Um, so it's easier to read. It's quite simple. Let's look at the fact that it's broken up. There's different bits to it. Let's look at the fact that there's a lot of white space on that page, isn't there? Compare that to a novel. We've not even started yet, and it's looking better for a start, isn't it? Mm. And then think about your songs that you sing or the music that you like or stuff like that. What we're going to do now is we're just going to sort of like do the same as you when you listen to your music. We're just going to listen to the music of this 
Um, and music was always really important to me. So that was a big sell with me at the very beginning. I always found it very musical. I always heard the music of poetry. I was always obsessed with the sounds of words um, and learning new words and um, using them in context however I, I possibly could. Um, yeah. I'm just playing with the words. I think it was sound. I think it was growing up in an house with six kids in an immigrant household with six kids, two Irish parents and and a tough upbringing. And I think, I think your voice, I think I discovered pretty early on that my voice was a really important tool in my existence. Um, and I think that's part of the love for poetry as well, because it's the most precise, precise language. And if it isn't precise, it'll sound good. So what it loses in its precision, it gains in its entertainment or musicality value. Um, so my love of music just meant that poetry and music went hand in hand in lots of ways. Um, again, the fact that both my parents were Irish, poetry and storytelling was always around, always yeah. around. You know, I grew up in an alcoholic household and it was great for that. It was absolutely brilliant for that element of growing up, the music and the songs and the dancing and the storytelling and the tradition and traditions um and the discovering of who your family were and it's your family tree and all those elements of growing up and it was incredibly poetic it was an incredible it was an incredibly poetic upbringing in lots of ways uh, because of that and because of the fact that i had big brothers who were into music and who would talk to me about music and show me albums and let me look at gatefold lps which were just another form of the book to me. Yeah. It was just another book because there was as much detail in that. So I know he produced Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. I know he was the mixer on uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars because it became really interesting reading material and it, they always looked beautiful and they, all, they always sat so well on my hands and between my legs on my bed. Um, and while they were playing, I had this visual thing that went along with it. Um, and again, it was incredibly poetic. In most cases, it had 15 poems involved with it, with which I took words from and used throughout my essays throughout school. So Bowie was littered throughout my stories and his descriptions and similar with Beatles lyrics and things like that. I just take them. Looking back, I, I felt like I was cheated, but looking back again, I feel like I was being a postmodernist before my time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the sound of poems, I think, I've not even spoke about what poetry does as well, that, that sense of moving you, that sense of taking you to another world, that sense of a poem being like a drug. Um, I don't know about you, but I, well, sometimes when I stand in galleries, I've done it today, um, I went to the National Portrait Gallery today, and sometimes when I stand in galleries, I feel a bit stoned, I feel a bit drunk. And it's it's the same when I surround myself with poetry or when I read certain poems, it gives me a high. It takes me to a new place. Um, first time I read, I don't know, let me think, off the top of my head. Um, first time I read, um, Electric Light by Seamus Heaney. First time I read Clearances by Heaney. First time I read 
Simon Owens' stuff. First time I read um, John Cooper Clark. First time I read, I was transformed to another world. I was taken to another world, and that world was mine, and that world could be mine, and that world was mine with which to do what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and and um, it just felt wonderful and empowering. And when I started doing it myself and joining in and playing the game. Think about it. It's not hard writing poetry, is it? Think about it. It's not hard writing your thoughts and your feelings down. But we create this massive veil about it. We create this massive fear element associated with it. When really, in lots of ways, to sit down and write, it's not a difficult thing, is it? To sit down and write something. And that's what I talk about hoodwinking sometimes. Hood Hoodwinking young people to write, and sometimes I'll just take sentences they've said during a session, and I'll just sneak them down on a piece of paper, and I'll read it out, and I'll go, "That's that's your poem." That's, yeah. That's that's what you've said today. I use found poetry. Um, I, I've done some stuff in advertising as well, um, so I've taken I've worked with people. So I did I did one with the FA uh, for the uh, respect campaign and nationwide, and we did this advert where I worked with a kid and a Took, I took the words from an interview he did with his dad and I, I created it into a found poem. Um, and it was on telly and that, and it was a beautiful film was made by it, and it was a wonderful advert, award winning advert. And it was a found poem. Yeah. Um, and I think that's another thing we've got to do. We've got to show kids how, we've got to tell them, we've got to stop telling them how hard things are. <laughs> we've got to stop telling them how hard things are. We've got to start telling them how we, no, actually, we've got it wrong. It's actually dead easy, this writing poetry. Look, I've spoke to you for 10 minutes and you've just spoke one and you didn't even know it. It's that easy, you don't know you're doing it. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I mean, what you've just said there, it, it, it harks back to what you were saying earlier about when, when you were, you felt that un, until you were actually doing it sort of professionally in the sense that you were earning money from it, you didn't have the confidence to call yourself a poet but you've been writing since you were seven. So you were a writer all your life. And it's getting that across to the students that you don't have to do it for a living. You don't have to do it as a job to be a writer or a poet or a footballer or a swimmer or an athlete or whatever it might be. If that's what you love and that's what you spend your time doing, you can call yourself whatever you like if that's who you are. Of course, totally, yeah. totally. And the book. Yeah. The more young, the more we write, I'm not talking about young people now, I'm talking generally. I spoke about it before. The more we write, the more we get to see ourselves. Healy speaks a lot about digging down into the ground. That's why so many of his poems about the muck and the dirt and his dad digging and a follower and person and ha personal helicon talks about him looking into a well. Um, and Healy's firm belief was that the more we dig into the earth, the more we see each other, the more we see ourselves, the more we understand ourselves. Now, I believe that about reading and writing. I believe that the process of reading and writing, the more we get to see ourselves. Think about it. And I say it to kids all the time. Take a problem you've got in your mind at the moment. Don't tell me what it is. Don't tell me what it is. I know that that problem is bouncing around your head. It never stops. It never sits still. It only sits still when you quieten it. And the greatest way to quieten that thought that's dancing around your head, with the 350 other thoughts which are in there as well, 
is to write about it. Because only by writing about it, because a thought is not real. A thought is so, it's intangible, it's just something that, it only becomes real when you recognise it by putting that pen to paper, because then it's a real thing, it's in ink, you yeah. can see it. And when you do that, when you manifest that thought, when you bring it to life, yeah, by writing about it, even if you just say, this is shit, or this is making me feel, sorry about the language, this is making me feel, um, or whatever, uh, dad's a div. You know what I mean? Just starting the process. It's a, it's an exploration of that process. Because Definitely. ultimately they are thinking about what they are writing about, they are thinking about what they're doing and thinking about that relationship. And by exploring that relationship, things become clearer. And that thing stops bouncing around your head because it's not in your head anymore. It's on the piece of paper. Yeah. And that's how you rationalise it because it's real. And it's yeah. exactly the same with writing. It's exactly the same with reading. The stuff we read, our voices, yeah, we've got this little man talking to us all the time, that silent voice in our head. By reading, we bring a whole host of different voices into our heads to discuss, to chat, to, to argue with. Because we argue with books all the time, don't we? How many times have we kicked off on a character in the book? You did what are you doing? That's out of order. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's, 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 it's an engagement. Again, it's an engagement, but again, it's, a, it's an exploration an exploration of the self. And is that not what is that not what we're here for? Is that not what we're here for? To, to, to find out who we are and just to try and do good. Yeah, and try and do good with our lives. Do you know what I mean? It's to me that's what it's about. And and by reading it, the richness that exists in your life, the empathy that exists in your life, the understanding, the different cultures, the richness, I think it makes you better looking as well. <laughs> well, I do. Yeah, it gives you an aura. I, I, gives you that. I, I genuinely do. Yeah, I genuinely do. I, I think. I think good readers are beautiful. I think readers are beautiful. They look beautiful. They carry an aura with them. They carry a sense mm -hmm. of knowledge and wisdom. You know, and we just want to stand near them people and get. I work with some artists, and I just want to stand near them, just to yeah. have a little bit of whatever it is they are. I understand exactly what you mean. Um, and we do, and also the true artists, they share, they share their wisdom. They don't hide it away. They're not the kids who won't let you copy in class. They share their wisdom openly because they know that's how, that's what you do. It's what you do. It's why I'm on here now. It's why I'm talking to you now, because I think it's important. I think it's important that we distribute our knowledge and share our ideas about ways into which to make our young people better people as they grow up and get older. Um, well, and, you've and actually just, sorry to interrupt there, you've, you've actually just given me a, que a, a question that's just popped into my head about that, you know, this idea of sharing. In a world where social media is is so in our faces now, you know, everyone's got access to it, whatever, whatever form it may take, you know, we're being encouraged to share more than ever. And what you've just said, I think, is exactly right. If you've got something, if you've got an idea, you've got you should share it. But we've also got the the dark side of it is that when you share something, if it's not what other people think is right, the consequences to somebody for sharing what they thought was just a unique idea or their perspective, you know, that that can have a terrible consequence for for somebody. So so what what's your thoughts on that? You know what. 
My thoughts on that is, is I'll bring it all back to confidence again. Mm. I think it's all about confidence. If you're going to put something down on there, yeah, that you believe in, yeah, you've got to stand by it. Now, mm. if we're talking about young people and social media, well, we can't take anything into account with it really because a, the, the social media of young people isn't them. They don't know. They don't even know who they are. So how can that voice or that person or that picture be them? It's not them. It's a construct of them that what they want the world to believe is them. It isn't them. And we know it isn't them. Um, I think I think in lots of ways social media is the worst thing that can ever happen to young people. <laughs> I think it causes more problems. I think it brings more negative things than it brings positive things. I think yeah, it makes I agree. I think it makes every kid thinks he's famous, thinks they're on the telly or something. Yeah. And, and, and that the idea that um, if they're not doing this, the old FOMO thing, you know what I mean? They feel as if they're missing out. Yeah. They feel as if they're missing out. And also, you, you've got to understand, I don't know whether you, um, if you've seen any documentaries on, on, on social media and stuff like that, but wonderful writer called Jaron Lanier, who I work with in LA, um, playing music, weirdly enough. He, he set up Atari, and he's on this documentary talking about uh, why we should just, all of us, grown-ups, kids, everyone, just get rid of your Facebook accounts, get rid of your Twitter accounts, get rid of your Instagram accounts, because you'll just live a happier life. And yeah. also, think about this, think about this. No longer in a young person's existence, Jen said, no longer in their existence can they be two small kids having a chat with each other. Because mm. that can never happen again. That can never, ever happen again. Because kids now chat online. And while two kids are online, there is someone else there called an algorithm. It isn't a human being. It's designed and constructed by a human being. But it's an algorithm. And that algorithm is try to direct those kids in certain directions and try to stir them towards things, ultimately trying to sell them something. So an innocent conversation cannot take place between young people anymore because there's always a third party involved. There's always yeah. a third party uh, within that conversation, but a really skillful uh, third party that has the skills to subliminally implant information. We're talking like the same way as Cambridge uh, Analytica did with um, with the Brexit vote and things like that, targeted yeah. Yeah. targeted certain certain demography of voters. Um, well, no longer can young people have it. I'd ban it. I wouldn't allow any young people on social yeah. media whatsoever. I'm sorry. Um, I oh no, I, I'm I'm in the same camp as you. I think. Yeah, it is. It is, it, it's one of those things that you think on, on the surface of it, it, it could it could be such a force for good or it, it you know, it, it has a lot of very positive um, uses, but ultimately the way it is being used is destructive and it's that, the need to constantly be watched, but also constantly watching other people. It's not good for a, a young person developing their own sense of self when their self is no, constructed on what they can see other people doing all the time. It's all about aesthetic, yeah. the whole concept of this. During that documentary, uh, it, it, the kid who invented the like button on Facebook was there, was part of the documentary, and he's like, oh yeah, I came up with the idea of the like button. 
and now I know I'm responsible for endless suicides and um, because mm. he is, you know, simply for that that one button that I say that because of what you say there innocently. Innocently, we think innocently. Um, the idea of social media is great, uh, but in the real world. Um, with the mind and the anonymity that's involved with it, and also young people not understanding that everything's traceable. Yeah. You know I mean, it's just the same as using your phone. There's someone yeah. watching you now. Um, I don't think they truly understand that. But their concept of real and our concept of real are totally different. Young, people, don't, young people believe that the online world is real. In lots of ways lots of young people believe that's real and that this world isn't real especially like to the kids that, that i don't know if you come across the hikokomori the japanese uh, thing that's happening at the moment where those middle class kids um 17 upwards have realized that their futures are weak so they're just hibernating to the bedrooms and they live in their bedrooms and that's that's what they won't leave the bedrooms yeah they jobs they won't um um, because of the, 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 their idea that they will fail to live up to what their expect, what their parents' expectations are, mm. and the old idea in in Japan is that honour thing, isn't it? the old idea of honour that they won't honour their family's name, so they disappear, and the suicides are massive, absolutely massive. Well, I think J Japan. Um, I read that they're, they're having a bit of a existential crisis because people, uh, you know, it's almost like the, like you say, not just the very young people, but you know, um, those in their late teens and early twenties, and even into their thirties, they're not getting married. They're not having kids no. because it's no. like that. The expectations are so high that they're so terrified they're not going to achieve everything they're supposed to that they're just not just not doing anything about it. And they're genuinely worried that Japan is not going to have any, you know, enough babies to <laughs> to yeah. to you know carry on the culture and the and the nation because you know the pe people are, are choosing to live these reclusive lives rather than get together and, you know, get married and, and start families. And share, and share, mm. like we were talking about a second ago, and share things, and share Definitely. Right, well, just, just to go throw a curveball at you, one of the things that, that um, inspired me on the to ask you about the news just there we listened to, I don't know if you caught it, but this idea that the government's all about levelling up at the moment, aren't they? And that, that they think that bringing Eton to Oldham is the answer. So what do you think about that? As somebody from, from that neck of the woods, what do you I've think worked about... All those, I've worked in all those authorities they listed there, right? Yeah. Here's my point about it, and it's a brilliant school. It's a brilliant, mm -hmm. brilliant school. Um, I know, I've been in there, I've seen what it's like. It is a brilliant school, but it can't work all over. Now, I'm not saying it can't work in Oldham, because I think it can work in Oldham. If they adapt, obviously adapt their style of teaching, yeah? if they adapt the curriculum, if they adapt to the demography of the place, it will be successful. And it will be successful. Listen, Etonians, it's not their fault. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not their fault. They were just thrown in there. They were little kids. Yeah. It's they not their fault. It's yeah. not the richest fault. I used to think it was the richest fault. It's not the richest fault. It's not their fault. You just... You just grow into that. It just becomes part of your life in the same way my life has become part of my life. And also, the principles and practices of the old Etonians are pretty good standards, you know. I think they built Agni Marshes, and I think they made a lot of recreational spaces for the mill kits to work in and things like that. So yeah. at the heart, 
at the heart of what they do is good. So I know whatever they're going to do in Oldham, a place I love. I love Oldham. Um, I've worked in loads of schools in Oldham. I've worked in loads of theatres in Oldham. Um, and it is this dark Oldham. Do you know what I mean? It's dark because of because of the influence of stupid political right movements that divided communities. Do you know what I mean? There are beautiful communities in Oldham and they've made certain political right movements have made concerted efforts to target those movements and create divides. Yeah. Fortunately, fortunately, there's too many good people working in those communities, too many good schools in those communities, too many good youth clubs and places where youth works, where it's the messages are delivered, um, stopping these um, and hopefully bringing the... Because I've got loads of faith in youth, me. I know mm. it might sound like I'm not the best mates in the world, but I've got loads of faith in them because they're just so much more sussed. They're so much more sussed in lots of different ways, just so much more open. Look at how they dealt with Black Lives Matters, man. Do you know what I mean? Look at how they, dealt, look at how they deal with trans and any sexuality stuff. Look at yeah. look at it's just so much better than the adults deal with it in lots of ways. I just think they've got a much more honest, genuine approach. The amount of adults who told who who, who said to me after Black after Black Lives Matter movement uh, rose up was yes, I need to educate myself more. I need to educate myself more. Uh, it broke my heart in lots of ways. Um, and it, it brought my heart because it became the standard thing to say. Mm. Um, whereas the young people, so much more accepting with, with so many things, so many things. Look at the 15 year old kid who's, who's getting all the green issues, Greta. You know, yeah. and she's been made a fool of by, the, by old white men, you know what I mean? Trump mm. and Johnson and whoever wants to have a go at her. She's well, I think they've tried to, but but she stood up to every. She, you know, she stands up to it, doesn't she? You know, they've they've tried their best to discredit her, but I don't think any of them have achieved it. Well, not in our house, definitely not. You know mm, what I mean? Definitely. Um, but um, yeah, they fear young people in lots of ways. They fear young people. I like what you said there about you know young people being. Um, there's so much more understanding and and um, like flexible i suppose to accept difference and and i think some something that i've got that i don't particularly agree with at the moment is when is when they're saying we need to be teaching kids more about um you know in in like in nursery school and in primary school they're saying we need to be teaching them about gender issues we need to be teaching them about about all of these different things and i actually don't think to a certain extent that it that it's even necessary because i just think have you ever watched a room full of four-year-olds None of them see colour, none of them see difference. They just see somebody my age who wants to play with me and I'm away and we're friends. And and I think there is a certain, I think the danger of that is if we start highlighting all of the differences that exist in society, it creates the divides. And what we should be saying is, yeah, we're, we're all, yeah, we've all got differences, but we share a lot more similarities than we do differences. So let's concentrate on those, shall we? You know, that's, yeah. that's my personal opinion anyway. Yeah, and I put it. I think the language police have got a lot to do with that as well. The people who control the way we speak. Uh, we can't say black, or we can't say Asian, or we can't say woman, or we can't say man, or we can't yeah. say gay. Or, and what that does, it stifles conversation. It's so it stifles learning. Yeah. When there's so many restrictions on language, yeah, 
Uh, it stifles conversation because people don't want to say the wrong thing. When people don't want to say the wrong thing, they'll do what a 15-year-old boy does whilst he's studying poetry. They'll just drop into the shadows in the background and they'll let it go and then the conversation isn't had. And that's what they yeah. want, really. They don't want the conversation to be had because when the conversation is had, people educate themselves, people learn and people grow because they've had that conversation. I love yeah. talking to racists. Oh, I love my the rape. No, I do. I, I'm, I am genuinely interested why why a person would be racist or homophobic. You know what I mean? Why? Yeah. And also because I very rarely meet them because I make sure I'm surrounded with lovable, kind people. But when I do meet them, it interests me. Oh, I know why and where this where this hatred come from. You know what I mean? Where this where it's become such an important thing in their life that. I did not, I've not got other things to do on that. <laughs> and as you say, communication, isn't it? It's communicating with people who have a different point of view. Totally, totally. And I know within five minutes sitting down with the kid, I change his mind <laughs> in lots of ways, especially with young people, because that's another thing with young people. They're desperate for role models. They're desperate for someone to say, honestly, it's not always going to be like this. It's going to be all right one day. Yeah. They're desperate for that. They're desperate for people to tell them that because no one tell no one's telling them that at the moment. Everyone's telling them the shit and they're gonna fail and the rubbish and they don't do the cleaning or look after the little brother and get go and get your grand's prescription. Do you know what I mean? No one tells them the race and they're gonna be great and no one tells them, no one validates their existence, no one no one does it, so the confidence diminishes. Yeah. Confidence disappears and they just feel shit about themselves all the time. Think about it. We did, didn't we? I'm talking about you, but <laughs> in lots of ways, in lots of ways, um, me and my environment, and we, we did. We, we grew up in a horrible city in the north. It was ravaged by Thatcher and loss of work and all these things. The only thing that saved us was music and art and culture and poetry and stuff like that. Very secretly, like, but yeah. they were the things that saved us. Even just listening to you say that, Mike, you know, everyone, that, that's the thing, isn't it? Is, is even everyone has got a unique story to tell and we should we should take the time to communicate and listen to as many different people as we possibly can everyone we come across in our lives we should be talking to them whether that's face to face or through a book or through a poem whatever medium it might be it's about learning different perspectives and seeing the world through other people's eyes and allowing that to inform what we understand about the world I've had the honour to work with so many different groups, and not just young people, young people, refugees, immigrants, no matter what. And by working with these people, I, I, you just grow. You just grow as a person because you're just filling yourself with knowledge and empathy. And I say it to kids all the time, I say, when I work with you, I grow. I grow. I cannot walk in this building and not smile because I know I'm going to have a great day. Yeah. And I know I'm going to affect people's lives. I know what's going to happen in this room in the next few hours will change certain kids' lives, and they'll and they'll never forget me. They'll never forget my visit. Mm. Um, and the effect of that is, it just goes on. And I get emails of kids from ten years ago saying, "You won't remember me, but you're coming to me school in Oldham." I'm a doctor now, and you played this tune one day, and we read the words to the song. It really made me think, I don't know why I'm putting that voice on, one, because it was a girl, um, but you get it, you understand, 
it has an effect yeah, and definitely. I'm very fortunate and very lucky to uh, to have fallen into a position that I can do that and I can travel the world, I can tour with music, I can do all these wonderful things but that's where I think that's where I get my true joy. The older I get, I think that's where I get my true enjoyment and don't get me wrong, you've seen how I work, it's exhausting because I'm up and down and in and out, I'm moving around the whole space all the time. It's almost yeah. like a theatrical piece within itself in lots of ways, I'm discovering the older I get. Um, but if you watch Michael Rosen and the way he operates, it is, it's a piece of theatre. And you watch Michael uh, Rosen with a class, with a group, uh, whether it's performing live, it is literally a piece of theatre and it's yeah. literally off. Off, off, off the back of his hand, just because of what we were talking about before about that wisdom and that knowledge and those ideas and that he's built up over all these, all these years and all this time, and it yeah. just comes out so fluently and it's like drinking cold water. Hmm. That's a nice, that's a nice idea to end on because we are at the end of the show, unfortunately, Mike. I could talk to you all evening. It's been fascinating, and thank you so much for coming on. You said you wanted to finish off with a yeah. poem, so yeah. off. So now's now's your moment. Cool. So this is called Signify, and I dedicate it to Miss McComb, my favourite teacher in junior three, who changed my world and made me feel significant. Signify. I called a man once. I was sat on the carpet with my arms folded and my legs crossed and my fingers on lips. In that special place that she would eclipse. Where she'd read me poems, tell me tales and sing me songs and like a fish to its source I was drawn in. And I loved the way she'd hold the book so that I could see the pictures and the way she'd move it slowly from side to side so that even the naughty kids at the back could see. She told me I was allowed to dream. She got us to act out plays. I remember doing Finnegan's Wake. She taught me about Shakespeare, Shaw, Joyce Keats and Yeats and I was eight, eight. But in that room, her voice was sweet music, echoing prayers and hymns and stories and songs. She was a living angel, but you'd know if you'd done wrong. And she took us on school trips to castles with moats, we'd cross oceans on boats and we'd float, float without ever actually leaving the room. And I love the way she made the simple act of reading the class register sound like the most beautifully sung tune. Simply by the way she'd validate kids' names by saying Kaylee, Michael, Catherine, James. And sometimes she'd get us to close our eyes and she'd say, imagine worlds from beyond these skies. And she told me once, Michael, it's all right to cry. And her eyes, her eyes were seaside blue sunshine, but in that rainy 1970s black and white moss side where my messed up little brain had disappeared the second she walked into the room, she made my insignificant life signify. And she taught me that the more I'd read, the more I'd see, and the more I'd see, the more I'd know, and the more I'd know, the more I'd grow, and the more I'd grow, the more I am, and I would give the world and all its riches just to hold that woman's hand one more time. Say thanks. All oh, thanks. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Thank Mike. You. Thank you for sharing that. That really was beautiful. And I think that just 
that encapsulates everything that teachers try and do. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Like you say, Hopefully. it's an uphill struggle sometimes, but yeah, we don't get in. I think, I think for me anyway, I, I got into teaching because I genuinely think that teachers make a difference on your people's lives. And I know it sounds really trite and it sounds really cliched, but we always remember that teacher who we felt believed in us and who felt, who told us that they thought we could do it. And if you can be that person in a young, if you can be that person, you're, if you can be the Mrs. McComb in a young person's life, I think you've you've done your job as a teacher. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, on that note, we are going to have to end because we've actually gone over by ten minutes. But thank you so thank you so much for your time I beg again. Your pardon. No, I no, pardon. It's, it's it's my fault because I just didn't want to. I didn't want to stop you talking because everything you were saying was just yeah. Like I said to you before, I've listened to you all night. It's been fantastic, and all the very best for any all the projects you've thank got. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you for this evening and um, for joining us and supporting the show. You're very welcome. Okay, take care of yourself, Mike. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.